President Glenn Barris Jr. graduated from Mount Vernon Bible College. He served as a youth pastor in Concord, North Carolina, Macon, Georgia, and finally later pastored a church in Cornelius, North Carolina, where he proved to be a master of church transition and leadership development. The Cornelius Church was one of the fastest growing churches in the district under his leadership. It has over time become a church with thousands attending, which demonstrated his vision for finding and appointing strong leaders. He left Cornelius to serve as a divisional superintendent and eventually rose to become one of the most progressive district supervisors in the Southeast District's history. His ability to inspire leaders, administrate, solve difficult issues, and superior leadership gifts caught the eye of the international church, and he was eventually promoted to be the general supervisor over all supervisors in the United States. This made him the third man in line for leadership over the entire Foursquare denomination. After years of faithful service, he was nominated and selected to currently serve his second five-year term as the president of the International Foursquare Church, which is headquartered in Los Angeles. The church has a worldwide membership of over 8 million with almost 60,000 churches in 144 countries. The denomination has greatly improved its financial position and long-term strategy under his leadership. He oversees a family of churches that have been graced to have a portfolio of properties and assets in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Glenn Burris is a true leader and a humble servant committed to excellent servant leadership and that's what sets him apart. Let's welcome Glenn Burris Jr., the son of Mr. Glenn Burris Sr., a son that means Father Christ. Good morning. Thank you, thank you. Please be seated. Wow, what a wonderful time to be with you. Thank you, Pastor Ricky and Diane. Debbie and I just love your pastors. And um, in fact, everywhere I've been this weekend, Debbie and I kind of hit out uh, near the harbor this weekend, and we ran into so many people who uh, either presently attend Overcoming by Faith or who've been touched by this uh, congregation. One guy said, I don't attend, but my father won't miss a Sunday there. Another lady said, I have three children. I was a single parent, and uh, my life was headed nowhere. This church challenged me to, to get back to college. I did. I finished. Now all my kids are in college. Um, and just the influence and impact of your church in this city. Um, Ricky said you can tell a person by his friends. I think you can tell the influence of a church by asking people in its city. And so uh, you have been faithful and fruitful, Pastor Ricky, in this city, and your church has given such a great witness. Well, Ricky and I both share something, too. We're both grandparents today. I told him, I said, it will change your world. Now, the other day, my grandson had been spending a couple days with us, and we just, you know, grandpa, there are no rules at Grandpa's house. And so he had been spending several days with us, and I thought he was ready to go home. And so we called his parents, and his parents come in the door, and he saw him, and he goes, oh, no. I thought, yeah, that's my grandson. Well, we got four, four beautiful grandbabies, and... Uh, so glad my wife could be with me. 42 years we're celebrating together. She's the love of my life, and uh, I'm so grateful for the, for the Lord. I, I want to tell you a quick story, because Ricky asked me if I had to do something about the future, because I, I think people that don't have their eye on the future either get stuck in the present or the past. Diane read my uh, theme verse this morning, but... Uh, and it's actually my life verse. Uh, I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, plans not to harm you, 
but to give you a future and a hope. Now, what's interesting is, and I want to take a few minutes to give you the context of that scripture because it really is important as you think about looking at the future and not being overcome by the present nor held in bondage to the past. You have to find a way. I finish most of my conversations with Pastor Ricky by saying, how are you doing? He always uses this term, and I'm sure you've heard it before. I'm fighting forward. Now, we're always fighting. I mean, we're always in this wrestling match against the, the enemy, but I, I love the direction he's fighting. He's not fighting in the present. He's not fighting in the past. He's fighting forward. Debbie and I uh, get a chance to, to go around the world, and this one trip I wasn't with Debbie. I was in Cambodia. Um, by the way, around the world we started five. When people tell you the church is dead, last year 5,000 new churches around the world. 5,000 new churches around the world exploding in some areas. In fact, in Indonesia, one of the fastest growing churches in the world is the Foursquare Church in Indonesia. It is the largest church in Indonesia in a nation that's the um, largest Muslim population in the world. And they actually have found a way to, to love and to be neighbors. In fact, uh, there's a, actually a commercial that warns them about um, uh, the Christians. They said, they'll be nice to you, and then they'll give you a Bible. And I thought, that's pretty cool. They're, they're actually complimenting us that we're kind people. And, and yet our ultimate goal is to get people to the gospel. I was in Cambodia uh, a year and a half ago. And I want to tell you about that field because it talks about moving forward. And then I want to get in this passage of scripture just for a few minutes. I was in Cambodia and I was ministering. And that night I, I felt kind of sick. I was in my room with a couple guys who were having some meetings. And, and I kind of asked them to leave. And they didn't know I was feeling bad. But kind of shut the meeting down a little bit earlier, and I went into the restroom. Now, I'm all the way around the world. I'm in um, uh, Cambodia. My wife is not there, and I started throwing up blood. Now, how many know that's not a good thing to do uh, anywhere, but especially in a third world nation? So I tried to get a hold of somebody at the desk. They couldn't get a hold of my mis uh, missionary friends in the Bible they or in the hotel. They couldn't understand me, so I finally had to call Debbie. Their phones weren't working either, so I called Debbie. She called them, they came to my room, brought a young Cambodian doctor who uh, started me on an IV and said, we're gonna get to the emergency room, but I'm not real confident in our medical practices here. We wanna arrange a plane to fly you to Thailand. So that was all being in the works. They took me to the hospital and I'm, I'm being worked on by the uh, medical staff there. And, and I'd had a history uh, several years ago where I almost died on an operating table because of bleeding ulcers. So I knew that this could be incredibly serious. What I found out as I'm laying in the emergency room is that the young doctor who, who waited on me, because just 18 years ago in Cambodia, we had one church. Don't you love the verse that says, don't despise small beginnings? This, we had one four-square church in Cambodia 18 years ago, and a missionary couple and his wife. He, he had never pastored a large church, more than 150 people, but God sent them to Cambodia, and, and they began to love on the orphan children, and God began to send them to them. In fact, the Lord said to him, you're not going to reach the adults in Cambodia because their hearts have been hardened by war, but you can reach the children, and when you reach the children, you'll reach the adults. So they started adopting children. Today, they have adopted, in 18 years, 30,000 children in Cambodia. And it is changing the spiritual landscape because he saw the future. He didn't just see the present. The present was, we have one church of 60 that we've had for 40 years. He saw the future. And the future wasn't in the adults. The future was in the children. So they started rescuing the children. Then they started leading these children to the Lord. Today, we don't have one church in Cambodia. We have 6,000 churches in Cambodia. And most of them are being pastored by the kids we rescued. 
They've come to the Lord. They've been discipled and now being sent out. Two young teenage boys ended up on an island. Not one Christian, 10,000. They encountered a witch doctor. They delivered him from a demon. Today, 5,000 of those 10,000 people are coming to church because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm sitting here in this emergency room, and the missionary said, Oh, by the way, the young doctor who came to you, your room this morning was one of the first kids we rescued off the streets. His parents were killed by the Khmer Rouge. They were both surgeons, and he said, I want to honor my parents by going into medicine. And today, he is the physician, board-certified physician of all of our orphans in Cambodia. And he just happened to be treating the president of the Foursquare Church. So I'm sitting there in the emergency room, and this little lady comes in. She's about 4 foot 10, looks like she's about 82 years old. She, she said something to the missionary, and he turned to me, and he said, Glenn, she wants to pray for you. Now, how many know when you're in a hospital and sick and somebody prays for you? That's good. I mean, you, you like people praying for you. Well, she came over. She laid her hand, said something in Cambodian. I don't know what she said. She turned around, probably 30 seconds, said something to the missionary, and then left. I said, what did she say? She wants you to know you'll be fine. Now, I thought, well, that's nice. I mean, have you ever had people come pray for you at the hospital? You're grateful that they're there. And I said, well, I'm glad she came. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. This lady's daughter was dead for two days. And she didn't stop praying for 48 hours, and God raised her daughter from the dead. She touches blind eyes and they're healed. She touches deaf ears and they're healed. And the missionary said, when she says you'll be fine, you'll be fine. I'd actually been worried if she'd went out the door and said, huh, there's some trouble here. <laughs> I went to the, uh, they flew me in an air ambulance to Thailand and they did the endoscopy, one of the finest hospitals in the world, and they said, here's your ulcer. They showed me this in uh, the endoscopy and they said, but to our surprise, it has stopped bleeding on its own. Now, when you get to the States and we're going to make you wait for five days, when you get there, I want you to have another endoscopy. So I flew back to Atlanta, had another endoscopy, and the doctor says, I don't understand. I've got your test. I can't find the ulcer. It's gone. I was so glad when I think about that situation for that missionary and his wife that didn't see one church of 60 people. They saw a nation of broken hearts and a nation of kids whose lives were ravaged, and so they started thinking about the future. So when I, this is, by the way, my life verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I love that verse, and people quote it a lot. But I'm not sure uh, that I even knew for a long time what the context of that story was. There were two prophets. One was Hananiah, that people hardly even know his name today. The other is Jeremiah, and almost everybody knows Jeremiah. Hananiah actually came to the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 28. This is a full chapter before 29. And he prophesied to the people of Israel, and this is what he said. All of, the, all of the stuff that you see, all of the mess that you see, God visited me and told me it'll all be gone in two years. And Jeremiah came up to him and said, you know what? People don't like, <laughs> people don't like prophets who prophesy devastation and destruction. They love prophets who prophesy of peace. But then Jeremiah added this, but if you prophesy of peace, it better be of the Lord. Jeremiah would come back to Hananiah later and say, I've been with the Lord, and the Lord said that your prophetic word is not true and that your ministry is, in, is going to end. Then, then you start going into uh, chapter 29. This is what the Lord said through Jeremiah to the people. God is going to rescue you. He's not going to harm you. He's got a future and hope for you. But it's not coming right now. 
So what do, we, what do you do in the meantime? This is, this is it's a powerful verse. Jeremiah says, go build your houses, go get married, go have kids, go plant crops, be peace to the city that I've sent you to, and you'll benefit from it too. And the day will come when God will rescue all of you back to Israel, and you'll come in with singing. The Bible says that prophet is the one whose name we still remember today because he saw the future. He wasn't promising. You know, I, someone said once to me, and I, I love it, it said, don't you know, hurt me with the truth. Don't comfort me with a lie. That's a powerful word. Be honest with me. Be truthful with me, but don't comfort me with a lie. Hananiah was just prophesying something and trying to make people feel good, and Jeremiah said, oh, God's going to rescue you, and there's nothing that people can do that will circumvent God's plan and purposes for you, but there's things you've got to understand between now and then as you have your eyes on the future, and that's what I want to talk to you about, because my life, we've been in the ministry over 40 years, and we've seen some remarkable things happen in our family, with our church, with our district, and now with the Foursquare Church around the world, but I want to tell you, you've got to have a clear view between the present and the future. If you don't have a realistic view. I tell people the tension in life to me is the tension between reality and, and, and desire. And you've got to understand the tension of those two. And there's four words I'd like to give you this morning because I think they come into play in terms of the Lord pouring out his favor and his grace on people. Because sometimes we want, like Hananiah, to be able to say, this is all going to be taken care of in two years. And Jeremiah says, no, it's going to be longer than that. In fact, I'm going to have you do some things in the meantime because, and here's what he was saying is, for some of you, you will never see the ultimate blessing. But if you do everything you're supposed to do, your kids will. You plant the seeds. You let someone else water. And believe this, God will give a harvest. Because I believe this, where people are faithful, God will prove to be fruitful. But we start with being faithful because we can't, what you discover about this verse is we can't rush the timetable. Debbie and I planted a church, or not planted a church, but took over a church in, in uh, Cornelius, North Carolina. And uh, the church was about 65 people and had been that way for 45 years. It was a classic Pentecostal church. And, and though I'm Pentecostal in every sense of the way, I knew that we had to have a major paradigm shift in this church. And, and the founding couple that were 75 years old were sitting on the front row of the church, had been there 45 years, and she still played the organ. Now here's this 26-year-old kid who knew very little. Here's this 75-year-old couple, but they were, they were maintaining, and I knew that God had something different for that church. The key is, how do you get from the present to the future when you have existing realities? It's, you know, living your life is not like building a new house on a blank piece of ground. Oftentimes, it's like remodeling a house. You pull back the, the wall board, and you find out the wiring needs to be replaced. Or, or you pull up a board in the floor, and you find out the foundation needs to be strengthened. But eventually, if you've got the patience and the persistence, you'll see what God has always been specializing in is restoration. Because he doesn't just, he doesn't, he restores something which actually makes it better than it was in the beginning. So Debbie and I started loving people. We had two small children, and, but I was there about six months, and, and this little lady, she was about four foot ten. It was so funny. She played the organ. She came to me and she said, I don't like the way you're running the church, and I'm going to take my organ home. 
I said, oh, the organ belongs to you? She said, oh, yeah, somebody donated it to me, and, and I don't like the way you're making decisions, Well, I'm going to take the organ home. So, so we kind of patched things up, and, and, but about three months later, we ran into another difficult time, and she said, Glenn, I don't like the way you're running the church, and I'm going to take my organ home. And I thought, I cannot live like this. How are we going to find our way to get breakthrough? Because there's going to have to be paradigm shifts. But, you know, the Bible says don't remove the ancient landmarks. But there's another thing that, that you see happening in the Bible. Don't let them set your boundaries either. There's that tension between understanding the history and honoring it, but pressing into a new future. And that's, that takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight and, and timing and patience. And so I said to the couple, I went to their home and I had met with a church board and and I said to them, do we have enough money to buy a new organ? They said yes. And so I went to this couple, and it was such a sweet conversation. Again, I'm only 26 years old. I'm sitting down in their living room, and I'm saying, listen, I know this is your baby. You started it. You've been, you pastored it for 45 years. But there is so much more that God has in store. And if you'll let me, I will honor you more than you've ever been honored in, in your life. This is, you are the founding pastors of this church. But we can't stay here. We've got to move beyond. And if you threaten to take the organ again, that's fine. We'll get a pickup truck, we'll put the organ on it, and we'll bring it to your house. I said, but you just need to know if that happens, we're going to buy a new organ and we'll have a different organ player. So I just want to make sure we know all the rules here. I spent 12 years there with Debbie. The church grew from 60 to 600. And by the way, my associate pastor followed me because I left at age 36 to become the district supervisor. Today, the church runs 3,500 on Sunday morning. Somebody had to see beyond 60. Somebody had to say, I want to create the steps that make it possible to get to the future. In fact, if I look at the story of Hananiah and, and Jeremiah and the people of Israel, I wasn't going to see all of the fruit. I wasn't going to personally experience as the pastor all of the growth, but I could build the houses. I could plant the, 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 the ground. I could do all the things necessary that at the end of the day, our spiritual children would see the results. So today, that's a powerful church. If you ever travel on I-77 north of Charlotte, you'll see one of those beautiful facilities, uh, this amazing 1400 uh, 1,400-seat sanctuary that has about 200,000 square feet of space in it and touching an entire region north of Charlotte. And um, so we left 10 years later. They were still on the front row. She was still playing the organ. It wasn't plugged in, but she was still playing it. They died 10 years later in their mid-'90s left in a state of a half million dollars. Now, this is a couple who worked to be able to open the doors of the church. Remember those days? Pastors who were, I'm talking about pioneers. I had so much respect for them, but I knew that we couldn't allow the church to stay there. That's the, that's the tension. Honoring the past, addressing the present, but contending for the future. But what principles do you, do you operate by? Because I think there's things, and there, I'm going to give you four words, and I'll work through them, and, and I'm going to give you the ending of that story. But these four themes of my life I've discovered in terms of principles, process, persistence, and patience. And they're all integrated. Principles, 
process, persistence and patience. In fact, in, with Hananiah, Jeremiah would said, you're a prophet that wants to say what people want to hear. And you will do them in the end more harm than you will good. Principles. If your life isn't based on principles, if somehow character isn't, isn't at the forefront of everything that you do, then no matter how talented you are, listen, Saul was a talented king, but he had no character. David was a talented guy as well, but he had great character. Today, if you go to Israel, you won't find evidence of King Saul's leadership. But everywhere you look, you'll see David's mark. When they chose to, to put their flag together after becoming a nation in the late 40s, what did they choose? The Star of David. Why? Today, archaeologists are unearthing the city of David. Why? He's their hero, not just because he slew Goliath and not just because he was a powerful warrior, but because of his character and his love for God. It was more than just talent. It was the treasure of his heart. It was the principles that guided. I, I, I don't know if you remember, but I, uh, when Diane said this about Ricky saying, don't give me a gift, invest in the future. I was thinking about David who was who was wishing for a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem and, and a couple of, three of the guys in his, in his ranks broke through the Philistine front lines and, and went to the, bell of the, to the well of Bethlehem and got some water and brought it to the king. And when, he gave the, when they gave the water to the king, David just gasped. I can't believe that my words were so influential that you would risk your life to get me a cup of water. I don't deserve this water, and he pours it out as an offering before God. What he said to them was, I've got to steward my voice better as a leader. I can't steward my voice as just someone is stewarding his voice so that people serve me. And David got it because the Bible says he was a man after a guy's own heart. He understood that his call was to serve people. I love the statement Bob Golf said later um, and I love this because I work in this corporate atmosphere at times and said, when people have lost their way, they don't need a sheriff, they need a shepherd. Amen. That's the call of the church. Yeah. Ricky and I spent uh, a half a day at Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, just reliving with Pastor Raphael Warnock, the current pastor. Don't you think it's fun that since 1886 they've only had six pastors? I love that. As we're thinking through the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., what, what surprised me was the condition our world is in, the condition the world was in the, at that time as well, that God, I hope you take this for great comfort, God raised up a pastor to sound a dream. Not just a person who was himself facing oppression, but he raised up a pastor. It says to me that the answer to our problems wherever we face them is not found in the world, is not found in politics, it's found in the church. Amen. And God wants the voices of more spiritual leaders to be spoken. That's why David's, I mean, even today when you think about his leading Israel, his voice as a spiritual leader, not just as a political leader. He was called a man after God's own heart. When this couple died, and the Cornelius Church, 95 years old, they had an um, inheritance of about 500,000. And I just, I so celebrated when I heard this. They left everything to the church. 
And I thought about those earlier conversations of a 26-year-old and a 75-year-old. Have not they felt honored? See, the church grew beyond them, but the church grew with them. That's the, that's the challenge at times with leadership. I know at times you can't take everybody with you, but I also remember that the Bible says about Moses, he, he moved at the rate of the slowest child because it was God's heart that everyone would be saved. And I think later we get that in Christ's ministry. He said, I'm not willing that any should perish. And yet so many times we, we divide up people by their sins and so forth instead of God saying, no, I gave my son's life for the whole world. Now, they'll have to receive it, but you start by loving the whole world because I love the whole world. Jesus was as comfortable being at the house of a sinner, Zacchaeus, talking to him about his inheritance. And that one conversation, that one conversation with Zacchaeus caused him to repent while the other religious leaders held him at bay because of his lifestyle. Jesus said, no, you've got to build the bridge. Four themes, principles process, persistence, and patience. I've shared with you some about principles. Now I want to talk a little bit about process. This, this idea of how do, you, how do you engage leaders? I spent the first four years in this office talking to people. I actually think there's a fairly simple approach to getting everybody on board, and it doesn't start with the word lead. It starts with the word listen. I think good leaders listen first, then they learn, then they lead. Jesus came on the shores of, of uh, Jordan and Syria, you remember, and he encountered the man who had been in a cemetery all of his life and cutting himself, and, and they tried to bind him. In fact, Mark 5 said they tried to restrain him and control him because he cut himself and he screamed and he terrified everybody. But when Jesus delivered him from the demons, it's interesting that Jesus didn't stay and try to expand his kingdom. He actually said to the man, because Jesus was actually not in Jewish territory anymore, he was in Palestinian territory, and he said to the young man, I love this, go and tell your story. Now, a lot of times we don't realize Mark finished that story in, in Mark chapter 6 because Jesus comes back to the same area. Now, remember where they were before? They had rejected him. They said, leave us. So Jesus got in the boat, told the man to stay, went across. He walked on water. The woman with the issue of blood touched him. Uh, John the Baptist got beheaded. He, was, he had fed the 5,000. So there lots of stuff that happened in between this. Now Jesus comes back to the same territory, the same territory that he was rejected. But there's a different reception. The Bible said by the thousands they came to Jesus bringing their children and said, would you heal our children too? Would you stay and teach us about the kingdom? What was the difference? The difference was Jesus touched a man who understood their culture and their language, and he became the culture broker of the kingdom of God. That's been four squares, I think. If God's done anything in our movement, it said, start something and release it. Empower people. It's kind of like when Jesus said to the disciples, I've got to go now. And they said, excuse me? They said, no, I'm going to go. Well, what's your plan? Who's in charge? Nobody's in charge because I'm putting the Holy Spirit in all of you. I'm going to empower all of you. And it was that incredible Jerusalem council meeting in Acts chapter 15 where filled with the Holy Spirit, they said to us, let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles to find God. 
And that was the explosion that caused the church to go around the world. That sense of empowerment because of the, the process that was happening in the church. I've heard this word, and I, I think about this story of, of Israel and the 70 years of exile. Winston Churchill said once, mountains inspire leaders, but valleys mature them. Mountains inspire leaders, but valleys mature them. Thirdly, persistence. I think this may be one of the most important parts of finding your way into the future. Living by principles, understanding process, that it takes an important um, process to listen, to learn before you lead. Thirdly, persistence. That is going after and realize it may take a while to get there. When I first was appointed president of this office, I had... Uh, a leader called me up. He's a very influential leader. And he said, some of us want to meet and talk to you about finances. And I said, sure. And he said, we don't believe the movement's been spending our finances as well. And we, we hadn't. I mean, nobody had been taking any money, but we'd been spending it a lot on vision and discovered that for seven years, we were $60 million in the red. Now, we had a lot of resources, and so nothing was cut or hurt. But I decided we were gonna move forward differently. And I said to those leaders in the room, 22 of them, of some of our most influential leaders, I said, all I can tell you is we're gonna have a different future than we've had a past. We just got a report on the seven years since then. First seven years before I became the president, we had a $60 million in the red. We were able at our last convention to show them the last seven years, 24 million in the black. And 14 years change. That persistence, that because I'll tell you, I never want one of those uh, meetings again with 22 leaders. I realize that if we're going to get to the future that God says, we have to be disciplined. There's persistence. There's, you can't just say it. You have to walk it out. Faith without corresponding action has no life to it. And lastly, patience. Um, I can't tell you how important it is for us to find our way through a level of patience that is, that is going to give God an opportunity. Because before he gets to your future, he's doing something in you. So that when you get there, you, you know, people will say, well, if I, could, if I could just win the lottery. How many of you know that like 85% of people who win the lottery are bankrupt within like five years? Money wasn't their problem. Handling money was their issue. So it isn't that God doesn't want to give you something, but sometimes we want to take the short circuit to get somewhere, the shortcut, and we don't understand that God's doing something in us and building. Here's what's happening during patience and persistence. God is building capacity. And when God builds capacity, then the future he has for you won't slip through your fingers. It won't be lost, but it'll be passed on to generation and to generation. I love all of the stuff that, that I've seen the Lord do in our movement, in our family. I have a young son. Both of our kids were in the uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And our kids said uh, to me when they graduated, we know how you parented us. And I said, you do? They said, oh, yeah, you, um, you gave us everything that you could give us. You were generous as a dad. But you had high expectations. And we love that because had you not been generous to us and only had high expectation, it would have led us to frustration. But had you given us everything and not had high expectation, it would have led us to entitlement. 
You kept this tension in our family. And my son at age 28 took a company to London, England and opened their first store. And um, within four years, it was making 70 million a year. And he took that concept with that chain of stores in the US, put it in 60 other countries around the world. And when he left them, he got, he got a, an incredible offer because of the success, but he had built a $2 billion company because he understood the tension between living out a life of generosity but having high expectations. And people loved to work with him. Wherever I would go somewhere where he was over, they said, we love your son because he's fair, but he's tough. And I think we could say that about the Lord, can't we? He's fair, but he's tough. I mean, he has these expectations of us. And yet when the church misses that, when somehow we've lost our, our, our mission and, and lost sight of what we do, then we get tied up in the systems of church and we lose sight of the mission of church. And I'm going to finish with one story, and then Pastor Ricky and I are going to talk for a few minutes. I was flying from L.A. to Seattle, and I was exhausted. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just was tired. I'm usually a polite guy, but I was really tired, and I get on the plane, and we had booked it late, so I was in the back by a window in a regional aircraft. And how many of you know those regional aircrafts? You just, both of you can't use the elbow rest. That's how... <laughs> Somebody's got to put their elbow down below, and, and you're about 12 inches from the person beside you. Well, I sat down, and this businessman sat down beside me, and he started talking. He was very gregarious, and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm tired, and I want to take a nap, but I also want to be polite, so I'm going to answer his questions. I'm not just going to ask him any questions in return, and he'll run out of questions, right? <laughs> no. And he finally said to me, Glenn, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, Lord, what can I say that won't? have him ask 10 more questions. So I said, I'm a consultant. I consult people all around the world. I wanted to go between not lying and not producing more questions. So he said to me, who do you consult? I said, I consult people in enterprises, small and large, all around the world. He said, what kind of enterprises are they? I finally said, I oversee a network of churches, and I could feel the temperature of the plane change. And for the first time, I looked at his face, and he was angry. And I said, did I say something that upset? He said, oh, yeah, I hate the church. I grew up in the church. I was hurt in the church. I no longer even believe in God. And I was thinking, is there another seat on this plane? <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those being instant in season, you, you really didn't want to be there, but you felt like you were on assignment. But, but God wasn't speaking into my ear. Okay, God, I'm ready anytime now. I said to him, I'm so sorry you were hurt. Instead of trying to justify whatever happened, instead of even trying to find out, I just said, I'm so sorry you were hurt. If no one's ever apologized to you, please accept this apology. I have no idea what happened, but I just want you to know I am incredibly sorry. I said, but I do believe in God, and I do believe the church needs to be held accountable for its actions. And if, and if I could discern God's heart today, I think he'd be recruiting you to help straighten his church out. And he goes, what kind of church do you belong to that would recruit an angry atheist? And I thought, that's a great question. 
I spent the next two hours telling him about the church Jesus is building. I'm telling you, I don't want to be a part of the church that man's building. Because it only restrains, controls, and manages. But the churches Jesus is building liberates people. It frees people. It takes the blind and, and allows them to see again. It takes the poor and gives them hope again. It takes those in prison and gives them some sense that maybe there's freedom on the other side of them. It takes those that are oppressed and said, I am here for you. I am standing with you. So we landed in Seattle and he goes, Glenn, this, this has been a profound and fascinating conversation. You've really messed with a lot of my assumptions. In fact, this is, I think this is the funnest flight I've ever had in my life. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the most miserable flight I've had in my life. And then he said to me, I can't wait to get home and tell my wife. I said, really? He said, yeah, my wife's a Christian. And every time I leave the house, she puts her hands on me and prays. She says, Lord, lead my husband to somebody who will give him a different picture of the church that he's experienced. Somehow, in the midst of life, in the midst of realizing that this is our present reality, we can read the past 2020, we're navigating the present and we're trying to figure out what the future looks like. And the people that get there, the people that get there with God's blessing, the people that don't just try to rush to get there, the people that don't get there in a shallow way, but in a healthy, deep way, are people that understand principles. They get process. They realize it takes work. They, they understand persistence. They, they understand sometimes people only see because they quit giving up. I love what Michael Jordan said. He said, I've lost 900 games. No, I think he said 9,000. can't remember the quote, but he said, I've actually, in 26 games, I've been given the ball at the end of the game and lost the game where it was in my hands to win the game. But it's been through the failures that I've learned to succeed. I know God is doing something in this work here in this church. Your testimony in this community uh, is powerful. But I want to tell you today, you've got to keep pressing toward the future. Learn from the past. Don't let the present define you. And contend for a future. Not that you've defined but that he's defined. Because this is what Jeremiah said to Hananiah. Hey, if God's told you that, nothing can stop it. But if God hasn't told you that, not only will it not come to pass, but your ministry will cease to be. What we know about Jeremiah today is that he was willing to say the hard stuff to people, but in the midst of saying the hard stuff, he said, but I see a, I see a rainbow. I see a light on the other side of this. God, God will not lead you through this to harm you. He's not leading you the other direction. But let me tell you, in the meantime, before God brings you all back to Israel, build houses, have your kids, plant seeds, and bless where you are at. And if you do that, you will be blessed in return. Amen. Jesus, thank you for 
our time together this morning. Thank you for overcoming by faith. Thank you because, Lord, I feel that there's some people kind of stuck between the past and the future. And my prayer today is that you'll clearly open up the future to them and let them see it. But they'll, they won't get there without embracing the right principles, committing to process, understanding persistence, and being patient. For you said, Lord, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not faint. Teach me, Lord, to wait. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Come on, say amen. Amen. But hey, man, what an amazing sermon. Amen. We're going to talk for a minute. Okay. Good. And uh, I call it Talk with the Pastor. Did you enjoy it, my friend? Amen. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I, um, I, like, uh, I like you to see a person, not just preach. Um, how, many, how many miles do you travel a year? I would say at the most it's been around 250, 250,000. That's a lot of miles. Uh, where, where you been? How many places you went this year? We just got back from uh, Kenya, Bulgaria, and Australia, and uh, that was kind of a, that's flying around the world and uh, amazing. Just different. We Deb, I took my wife to the Maasai Mara and had her sleep in a tent out in the middle of the um, and and at three o'clock in the morning we heard something munching out by our tent. It was a hippo. That's what I'm talking about. Yep. That is a woman. You hear what I'm saying? That's I'm saying a woman Diane, right pay attention, baby. Listen. I said, Debbie, that hippo comes in. You, 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 save me. <laughs> no, it was good. You know, I was just invited to Kenya to do a, a safari deal with a group of missions group. They're trying. I'm trying to get more pastors to go to missions field, mm -hmm. and um, so they wanted me to go in February. I can't go, but Diane and I we're the hippo, that I'm inspired now. The tent, that's, amen. you got to hang out with the Maasai guys. I mean, just a remarkable history with them. It's a nice tent. Okay. It, it's a, Debbie says it's a nice tent. So, see, Diane, you're, she wants a Marriott tent. Trust me. I looked at what you said about Michael Jordan. I, thought, I had never heard this before. Michael Jordan quotes, I've missed 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games 29, 25 times. It's amazing. Uh, 25 times I've been trusted to take the, the winning shot and I missed. <laughs> amazing. Tell me, you said something about, you, you were talking about um, um, churches that building from the past, going to the future. Our, our campaign and our theme is building a future. I believe that you build a future. You believe that? Yeah, I think you can never be satisfied with the present. I mean, I think you have to realize that our God is a future God. He's always building something. He's, he's creative. He's, he, he, he's an expansion God. He's not a reduction God. Um, and so uh, whether it's the church, whether it's our family life, or whether it's uh, an organization, you have, to, you have to be laying the groundwork for what God sees for the future of this. And whether you see it all, the, the generations beyond you will thank you for being faithful to having a healthy uh, platform 
so that they can inherit what God had in store for them. How many churches are you overseeing? Um, you know, I think the thing said 60,000, but actually we are just under 80,000 now around the world. Pretty amazing. At 5,000 a year. We'll be over 100,000 churches. And this is the cool thing. When I set my office, I look across the street, and it all started with one church. Yeah. The, one the, church. The church you saw on the beginning of the, 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 uh, the video. The, um, to talk about how a church gets into what mistakes do they make when they build a new church? What, 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 especially financially, what mistakes do they make? I think if they overbuild, if they think the old saying, build it and they will come, I think giving and expanding are a part of the, of the fabric of the church. But as you and I have had conversations about, the church looks different today in, in 2016 than it did in the year 2000. The church is not... And you think about, I don't just like to go back to the beginning of Foursquare. I want to go back to the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts says church was everywhere. I mean, what if instead of me thinking this morning, these are your members, what if I saw them all as missionaries? That would change everything. Not, not for you. I'm not saying you don't see that. But I'm saying when, when we look at people, if we see them as people to collect and to support rather than the people to be equipped and sent. Yes. I've heard that the greatest measure of a church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. Wow. And so, you know, because I've met, I met people just this weekend that have been touched by your church. So I know you're going in the right direction, but that if I say anything, I would say the future has as much to do with understanding all of the dynamics, not just about property and building, but about... Jerry uh, Dearman said recently, he said, you know, uh, people are attending church less today. I mean, coming to a formal building. But he said, instead of looking at that as a negative, I thought, why don't we take church to them? And his, he pastors the rock movement, and he said, we actually have a plan over the next 10 to 15 years to plant 40,000 cell groups around the world. And we've got the discipleship built in. I mean, there's a lot of things to that, but the point is, there's no barriers today. I mean, the obstacles of, of communication and being able to disciple people and touch people. I mean, you can get on an airplane today and, and be in Nigeria in 12 hours or 30 hours, depending on what the your connection is. Yeah, yeah. um, but if we, if we can understand, this, this might be the toughest time we've ever lived in terms of, uh, of America and the Western world for Christianity. But it is, it is, without a doubt, the most incredible time for the Pentecostal church around the world. One in four people today are Pentecostal around the world. The Southern Baptist said, we're not going to, we're going to let our missionaries speak in tongues. I thought, I mean, we're, we're not going to stop what God started. One of the guys who ran for the president of the Southern Baptist said, hey, we're going to do, I mean, I, I, I won't tell you his name or city, but he said, one of the largest churches in America said, I've been reading the book of Acts and we're going to study through the book of Acts. And he said, I don't understand it. I haven't experienced it all, but I can tell you, we're not going to stop it. Now that's a pastor that God would look down and say, no limits. Last question, and, and, and I, you talked about barriers. Now, our, our history, uh, let me ask this question. How many of you in here have never heard uh, of a four-square church? How many of you have heard of the four-square church? Raise your hand. Put your hands up. Good. How many of you have, have uh, were raised in Savannah? How many of you are from outside of Savannah? Wow. Okay. Um, 
Watch this. This is a great question. How many of you were greatly affected by the election? Emotionally. Raise your hands high. Hi. Great. Great. Um, you and I and Diane and Debbie watched the first debate together in my yeah, we house. Did. Yeah, we did. That was yeah, fun. It's really great. I like the fact that you are a guy who believes in breaking barriers. He knew more about Martin Luther King than me. I was a little bit ashamed of that, by the way. <laughs> He's going touring the church telling me stuff I didn't know. And I want to commend you for being open-minded. I want to commend you for being um, committed, a good friend. And I don't know if you heard the end of that video. That I, 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 it said, Glenn Burris, the son of a great man, Glenn Burris Sr., who made his daddy proud. Um, before his daddy passed, he told him, he said, I want to go by and see Ricky. And he came, came in here and uh, looked around, and uh, you made him proud. And uh, I think that you need to find in your life friends that don't look like you, Amen. that think in broad ways that broaden your mind, and that give you something that will help you be better. So I want you to meet my friend, and I want you to hear him talk to you. Tell them a final word. We're going to do a campaign. We're going to start. We're getting ready to down the road. We're positioning ourselves down the road. We're going to have to build another building eventually, and a year, year and a half or so. We're going to. We're going to. We got some renovations we're going to do. We got some mission work we're going to do, and we're going. We're going to be hurricane strong. How many of you say amen to that? Amen. Come on, amen. We're going to be hurricane strong. And so, what would you say to our church? What would be a word to those who are here and those who are streaming in live? What would you say to them? I, I would say, Ricky, that uh, absent of the church's influence in our world, and especially in America, uh, we're in trouble. But with the presence of the church, with our witness, even as, even as Jeremiah said to um, uh, the people of Israel, you may not be in charge, but you can do all the stuff you're supposed to do bless people and you'll be blessed in the meantime and when God brings you back you're going to be a nation ready to go and so I would say to the church um, God needs the church today more than ever I mean we we opened our doors and thought everybody would come into the building I would say to you today that the future of the church is not in a, in a building the future of the church is when we leave this property and become the church and so as you're thinking of breakthrough, as you're thinking of overcoming barriers, make this be the greatest training facility in the world. I mean, you're training warriors, you're training evangelists, you're training worship leaders. You know, I was back in your uh, video room. You're training people who want to give their heart uh, and, and life to Christ. Um, can you imagine? We have 10 million Foursquare people around the world. If I saw the future not in the credentialed ministers, but in the 10 million people. And I'll leave you with one last quote. It's my heart that we could mobilize the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. And when we do that, we'll fulfill the Great Commission. Well said. Give my friend Glenn Burris a big hand. I, I don't have time for this question, but I'm going to say, because I, I know they want me to ask you this, and I'm just going to put it out here. How do you think that the, there's a tension racially in this country. Mm -hmm. you, you and I talk about this. Yeah. What is that from your perspective? 
what, what is it that in the church is not doing too well in some ways? Yeah. What is it in your opinion? What, what can we do about that? Well, I would say this, there's a twofold approach. One is the things that we do publicly that um, the church has to break down the barriers rather than build them. And, but secondly, I think we have to stand together, Ricky. I mean, I think if the church segregates in terms of its mission and in terms of its journey, I think we give the enemy exactly what he looks for because he's always divisive. So I look at the spiritual component, not just the political or the ethic, uh, I mean ethnic uh, component, because, you know, we've got, as you know this, we got Brazilians pouring in the country, we got Chinese, we got Indians. In fact, the last two years, it hasn't been the Hispanics that have been the highest demographic group, it's been Chinese and Indians. So we are, we are a melting pot of, of different, but, but the African-American situation is a very unique, um, I think, history of America and a lot of pain and a lot of oppression. And I just get angry sometimes when I watch our history. And, um, but we're not gonna change it, I don't think, overnight. But I think if we stand together, I mean, and we stand up to any oppression, if it's, if it's law enforcement injustice, we need, this is the thing I love about Martin Luther King. His commitment wasn't just racial equality. His commitment was returning people to Genesis 1, which was returning people to the image of God, to the dignity that God had given them. And if all of us will be driven to that, so it's anybody who's marginalized. If the church will take that mission on, Anybody who's marginalized, Jesus did, I'm going after him. I'm going after the Samaritan woman, but I'm going after blind Bartimaeus because he's a poor guy that's just been left by the side of the road, and this is the way they treat uh, poor people, or the crippled person. Remember the disciples said to him, so who's to blame? Is it his mom? Is it his parents? Or, you know, is it him? And Jesus said, no. This allowed so that God could get glory in his healing. So I want to be a part of the healing agent, Ricky. I want to be a part of the healing future of the church. And now let me just say to you as a really good African-American friend, help us, help me, because um, I, I will never see through the lens that you see through. But I want to have a heart that has the compassion. I, I didn't understand the atheist viewpoint. I didn't understand it. But God gave me a compassion for him that helped us build a bridge. And um, so let's be bridge builders instead of building well said, my friend. We'll leave it there. Give him a big hand. My friend, Ben Burris, give him a big hand. Thank you.